Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. These forums occur on the average of six times a year. On each occasion, we throw open the doors to this large semicircular sanctuary built at the turn of the century and invite all comers without admission charge or even the presence of a collection plate to come in to be challenged mentally and morally by a person from some major field of endeavor who has won his or her spurs as a thought-provoking and daringly caring human being. So, who better to have with us today than one Isaac Bashevis Singer? Novelist, short story writer, Nobel laureate, native of Poland, son of a rabbi, liver taster to the full of the life of the ghetto, lover of the Yiddish language through which he continues to express himself, Emigre to the U.S. in 1935, given the gathering clouds of war and Jewish oppression over Europe between the wars. He began his writing career as a young man in Warsaw and has been at it with few pauses ever since. He is now in his early 80s but shows no sign of slowing down, physically or mentally. His literary accomplishments include nine novels, among them Shasha, which brought him the 1978 Nobel Prize in Literature, 15 children's books, and hundreds of short stories. Last spring, Mr. Singer visited the Twin Cities as the first Edelstein Keller visiting writer at the University of Minnesota. It was a major event. Our guest is quoted as having said, if you sit down and write a message, it will kill the story. But if you sit down and write a story, perhaps unintentionally, you will make a message. Well, I know he plans to share one or more stories with us here today. So let his medium be his message. Mr. Singer. Dr. Meisel, Mrs. Uh, Mary Beth Kohler, ladies and gentlemen. The story which I'm going to read to you, I call The Missing Line. Toward evening, the large hall of the Yiddish Writers Club in Warsaw became almost empty. At a table in a corner, two unemployed proofreaders played chess. They seemed to play and doze simultaneously. Mina the cat had forgotten that she is a literary cat written up in the newspapers and went out to the yard to hunt for a mouse or perhaps a bird. I was sitting at a, at a table with the most important member of the Yiddish Writers Club, Joshua Gottlieb, the, the main columnist of the Yiddish newspaper Heint. He was the president of the journalist syndicate, a doctor of philosophy, a former student of such famous scholars as Hermann Cohen, Professor Bauch, Professor Messer, Kuna Fischer. 
Dr. Gottlieb was tall, broad-shouldered, with a straight red neck and a pat belly. The setting sun threw a purple shine on his huge, bald head. He smoked a long cigar and blew the smoke out through his nostrils. He would not have invited a beginner like myself to the table, but there was no one else available at, at this hour in the Yiddish Writers Club, and he liked to talk and tell stories. Our conversation turned to the supernatural, and Dr. Gottlieb was saying, you young men are in a rush to explain everything according to your theories. For you, it is theory first and the facts last. If the facts don't match the theories, it is the fault of the, of the facts. <laughs> but a man in my age knows that the events have a logic of their own and that above all, they are the product of causality. You are mystics feel insulted if things happen in what we call a natural way. But to me, the greatest and most wonderful miracle is what Spinoza called the order of things. When I lose my glasses and find them in a drawer about which I, I was sure I haven't opened in two years. I know I put them there myself only five minutes ago. <laughs> the eyeglasses would have stayed there forever, no matter how many incantations I would have recited to retrieve them. As you know, I'm a great admirer of the German philosopher Immanuel Kant. But to me, causality or causality is more than a category of pure reason. It is the very essence of creation. You may even call it the thing in itself, das Ding an sich. Dr. Gottlieb, who made causality, I asked, just to say something. <laughs> no one, and therein is its beauty. Let me tell you, young men, about two years ago, something happened in my, to me which had all the earmarks of one of your miracles. I was absolutely convinced that no explanation was possible. Rationalist as I am, I said to myself, if this actually happened and it was not a dream, I will have to reappraise everything I learned from, from first class gymnasium to the universities of Bonn and Bern. But then came the explanation and it was as convincing and as simple as the truth can only be. As a matter of fact, I thought I would write a story about it myself. However, I don't want to compete with our young literati, the young writers. I guess you know that I don't have the too high an opinion of fiction. It may sound sacrilege to you, but I find more human fallacies, more psychology, and even more entertainment in the daily press than in all your literary magazines, which no one understands anyhow. <laughs> Does my cigar bother you? Not at all, Dr. Gottlieb. You certainly know, I don't need to tell you, that our typesetters in the, in, in the hind and in the Yiddish press generally, make more errors 
than all the other typesetters in the whole world. <laughs> Although they consider themselves ardent Yiddishists, they don't have the slightest respect for their language. I don't sleep nights because of these barbarians, these vandals. Who said it, that 90% of all writers die not from consumption, but from misprints? <laughs> Every week <coughs> I read three proofs of my Friday column, but when they correct one mistake, they immediately make another mistake, and sometimes two, three, four. About two years ago, I happened to write my article about the same philosopher, Immanuel Kant. It was a jubileum of some sort. When it comes to philosophic terms, our typesetters are especially vicious. Besides, the one who does the layout has a tradition of losing at least one line from my column every week, and I always find it in another article. <laughs> Sometimes even in the news. That day I quoted an expression of Immanuel Kant, which was a perfect target for misprints the transcendental unity of the apperception, the transcendentale Einheit der Apperception. While I wrote it, I knew that our typesetters would make mincemeat out of it. <laughs> but I could not avoid it. I read the proofs three times as usual, and miraculously the words came out correct the third time. I even uttered a little prayer just in case. That Thursday night, I went to sleep as hopeful as a writer in Yiddish can afford to be. <laughs> the papers are brought to me, the Yiddish papers are brought to me about eight o'clock in the morning on Friday. And Friday is always the crisis of the week for me. At the beginning, everything seemed quite smooth, and I hoped against hope that this time I would be saved. But no, the line which began with the words, the transcendental unity of the apperception has been lost. <laughs> the whole article became senseless. Of course, I was angry, bitter, I cursed all the Yiddish typesetters with the vilest oaths. After some half an hour of utter resentment and extreme anti-Yiddishism, <laughs> I began to look for the, for the line in all the other articles <laughs> and news items of our Friday issue. But this time, it seemed it had been lost altogether. Even this was somehow of a disappointment to me. What boils me up more than anything else is the fact that people in the street, even my colleagues in the Writers' Club, compliment me, and they never seem to miss the missing line. I have promised myself a million times not to read the, the Heint on Friday. But you know there is an element of masochism in each of us. In my imagination, I took revenge on the typesetters, the editors, the proofreaders, shooting them, hanging them, or even worse, making them memorize all my columns from the year 1910 <laughs> until today. After a while, I decided that I have suffered enough and I began to read the moment, our competition newspaper. 
especially to see what their columnist, Mr. Helfman, had written for that Friday, for that occasion. Of course, I knew beforehand that his piece could not be anything but bad. In all the 20 years we competed, I have never read anything good by this scribbler. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about him, but to me he is sheer abomination. That Friday, his concoction seemed worse than ever, as it, as it does every week. So I gave up in the middle and began to read the news. I was reading a news item with a, with a title, A Man a Beast, the story of a janitor who came home at night from the tavern and raped his daughter. Suddenly I saw the most impossible, the most unbelievable, the most preposterous thing that could ever happen. My missing line was right there. <laughs> I, knew, I knew that it could not, could not happen. That it was nothing but a hallucination. However, hallucinations seldom last longer than a second or a split second. Here the words lingered before my eyes the transcendental unity of the apperception. <laughs> I closed my eyes, sure that when I opened them again, the mirage would have vanished. But I opened them and there it still was, the unthinkable, the ridiculous, the absurd. I must admit to you, young men, that while I disbelieve while disbelieving in what you call the supernatural, somehow I toyed with the idea that one day a phenomenon might immerse in my life which would force me to lose faith in logic and reality. But that a metal line would fly from the hind composing room on Chlodner Street number 8 to the moment composing room <coughs> on Alevki Street, 38, this I certainly did not expect. My son came into the room and I must have looked as if I had seen a ghost because he said to me, Papa, what's the matter? I don't know why, but I said to him, please go down and buy me a copy of the moment. But you are reading the moment right now, my boy said. And I answered that I must see another copy. The boy looked at me as if to say, the old man is Meshuggah altogether. <laughs> Still, he went down and brought me another copy. Sure enough, my line was there on the same page in the same news item. He came home from the tavern and saw in bed his daughter and the transcendental unity <laughs> of the apperception. <laughs> I was so baffled and distressed that I began to laugh. To be completely on the safe side, I asked my boy to read the whole item out loud. He again gave me that look which meant my father is not all there and he read the item to me. When he came to the uh, transposed line, he smiled and asked, is this why you made me go down and buy the moment? I didn't answer him, but I knew that no hallucination has ever been shared by two uh, people and certainly not for such a long time. Unless my boy too was a part of the hallucination. <laughs> Dr. Gottlieb 
There are cases of collective hallucinations, I said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyhow, that Friday and Saturday, I couldn't sleep and I could barely eat. I decided to go Sunday morning and speak to our manager of the printing department, my old friend, Mr. Gavza. If there is a man who cannot be fooled by abracadabra and hocus pocus, it is he. I wanted to see the expression on his face when he sees what I saw. On the way to the hind, I decided it would be nice if I could find the manuscript of my column, assuming it wasn't thrown out. I asked for it, for the copy and of my article, and still, and, and lo and behold, they found it. And the words were there as I remembered them. I was eager to find a solution to the riddle, but I did not want the solution to be based on some silly blunder, ludicrous misunderstanding, or lapse of memory. With my manuscript in one hand and the Friday moment in the other hand, I went to Mr. Gavza, and he too gave me a strange look because I never go there on Sunday. I showed him my manuscript and said, please read this paragraph. Before I even finished my sentence, he said, I know, I know. A line was missing in your column about Kant. I guess you want to publish a correction. Believe me, no one ever reads them. <laughs> no, I don't want to publish any corrections, I said. What else brings you here on Sunday morning, Gavza asked. I showed him the Friday moment and the item a man, a, a beast, and said, now read this. Gavza shrugged, began to read, and never before have I seen an, expre an expression like this on Gavza's quiet face. He gaped at the news item, at my manuscript, at me, again at the paper, again at me, and said, am I seeing things? This is your missing line. <laughs> yes, my friend, I said, my missing line had jumped from the hind to the moment a dozen streets away over all the buildings, all the rooftops, <laughs> and settled down right there into their printing room. Or possibly the Demas did the job. If you can explain this, then really, I cannot believe it, Gavza said. This must be some trick, some kind of practical joke. Maybe someone glued in the line. Let me see it again. No trick and no glue, I said. This line fell out from, from, out, from my article in the hind and it appeared last Friday in the moment. I have another copy of the newspaper with me. My God, how did this happen, Gavza asked. Again and again he compared my manuscript with the line in the moment. Then I heard him say, if this can happen, anything can happen. Maybe the demons really did steal your line from the hind and carried it over to the moment. This is the only possible explanation, I said. For a long while we both stood there looking at each other with the painful feeling of two adult men who realize that the world has turned to chaos, all logic gone, and what is called reality is totally bankrupt. Then Gavza burst out laughing. No, it wasn't the demons, not even the angels. 
I know what happened, he exclaimed. If you know, say it quickly before I burst, I said. And here is how he explained it to me. The Jewish National Fund often publishes an appeal, both in the hind and in the moment. Sometimes they make changes to adjust the appeal for the readers of the respective newspapers. Then they don't make a, a, a matrix, but the whole metal page is carried over from, from the, from, by car from, the, from one newspaper to the other for adjustments. By error, my line must have, your line, must have been put into the metal page of the appeal. It was carried over by car to the moment, and they as someone noticed the mistake, took out the line from the appeal page, and it promptly got stuck into this news item. The chances that, that such a thing should happen are not as small as one may think, considering our sort of typesetters and proofreaders, Gavza said. They are the worst bunglers. No, let's not put the, the fault on the, on the poor demons. No demon is as, as, as ignorant and as careless as our printers and the printer's devils. We had a great laugh and in honor of that his historical solution, we went down and had coffee and cake. We spoke about old times and the countless absurdities published in the Yiddish press, God bless it. Like, and we also spoke about the various corrections, the strange corrections which you find in a Yiddish newspaper. For example, on page 21 is printed, she was his third wife. Then there is a correction. It should be he had a long white beard. On page 76 is printed, he went to study in the, into the town of Vilna. Instead, then there is a correction. He had two sisters, both of them unmarried. <laughs> he also told me about another kind of a, of a, of a strange kind of printing in the Yiddish uh, newspaper. It was an article about the temperature of the sun. And it was written that uh, the corona of the sun must have about uh, uh, 5 million degrees temperature. The surface of the sun may have 6,000 degrees of temperature. When it comes to the inside of the sun, especially to the center, it may have millions and millions of degrees of temperature. And then the article ended with the words, and there the heat is, is unbearable. <laughs> Dr. Gottlieb paused, trying to revive his extinguished cigar, soaking at it violently. Then he said, my dear young man, I tell you all this just to prove to you that one should not be in a rush to decide that modern nature has given up its eternal laws and that the goblins and, sp and sprites and devils have taken over. As far as I'm concerned, the laws of nature are still valid, whether I like them or not. And when I have to convey a message to my old wife or to my not much younger girlfriend, <laughs> I still use the telephone and I don't rely on telepathy. <laughs> thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank, thank you. Thank you.
Thank you, Mr. Singer. I would like to read a quote that bore on another appearance in this community. The newspaper man said, but when Singer speaks, the frailty melts, the eyes sparkle, and the audience leans forward. When in the company of an 81-year-old master storyteller, only a squanderer would let even a single word float out of reach. I agree. <laughs> Allow me to remind our radio audience that they have just been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. Our guest today, our speaker, has been Isaac Peshevis Singer, novelist, short story writer, Nobel laureate, native of Poland. We have been delighted with his presence and we look forward momentarily to his responding to a number of questions. To the end that we might have those questions, please fill them out on the yellow cards in the pew card racks for that purpose, pass them to the aisles, and the ushers will, will bring them forward. Those of you who must leave us at this time may feel free to do so now. Let us just take a moment for the purpose. While we are in this, in this mode, let me thank, in the name of all of us, the B. Dalton booksellers for their special interest in today's program. Our co-sponsors are today B. Dalton Bookseller, Dayton's, Target Stores, and the Dayton Hudson Foundation. While we're gathering ourselves here, perhaps I could just put one question that came to me already. What's the secret of being so vibrant and energetic at 81 years of age, sir? Well, I, I, of course, everything is in God's hands, Dr. Maisel. And if, if God wanted me to live 81 years or 80, 88 years, it's his business. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know the solution to the secret. Here's a question that's come forward. 100 years from now, when literary critics analyze your contribution to literature, with what moral themes or issues would you like to be identified? I, li I still like to be identified as a storyteller. And the reason why I, I like this, this identification is that I think that storytelling has been neglected by literature in, in, in this century. In the 19th century, we had great writers, but they were also all great storytellers. Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Gogol, Flaubert, Dickens, and, uh, and others. We don't have such powers in our time, and many of the writers have stopped telling stories because they are so much interested in the message that they forget about the story. They forget that literature is basically made to entertain the reader, not only to teach him what kind of sociology we should choose, what kind of, uh, of politics, and so on and so on. And I, I, because of this, if they ever mention my name a hundred years from now, they will say, here is one of, of those who did not neglect the story, who always in his uh, writing told a story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Given your response to my question about your uh, age and your competence and agility at this age, uh, I think this fits in, this next question. Please tell us something of your religious faith and the importance of your faith for your writing. I have been all my life a skeptic. But in one respect, I was never skeptical. This is about the existence of God. I had some doubts about revelations, but I always knew that the word did not create itself, that evolution couldn't have done all the, all the miraculous things which we, which we see when we uh, uh, investigate nature. This is my religion, it still is. I have, and I'm still a skeptic. When I heard last time about the, the earthquake in Mexico and also about what happened lately in Colombia, 
I ask myself, can it be that God sits there above us and decrees that there should be uh, an earthquake in, in, in Mexico and that, the, and that uh, a mud should cover thousands of people in Colombia? I have doubts about it and questions. But still, my belief in God and his planning and his existence is still there. And I, I thank God for this. Another question from the group. Could you describe your activities, your feelings, the day you heard you had received the Nobel Prize? Yes, the question is about the Nobel Prize. I will tell you how, how it was. Uh, I lived in, in, in Florida, and in the morning I always go to eat breakfast in a drugstore or wherever it is. And I was waiting for my wife to come also there to have breakfast together. And she came back and I said, why are you late? She said, they say you got the Nobel Prize. <laughs> I said, the Nobel Prize? I, a Yiddish writer? It cannot be, and certainly not this time of the, of the day. Let's have, our, let's have our oatmeal quietly and let's forget about the Nobel Prize. <laughs> and so I ate a very, I ate my breakfast. It took me about a half an hour or so. Then I went home, and home was only a half a block from the drugstore where we had our, our breakfast. Suddenly I see reporters and photographers and cameras, and I knew that it really did happen. <laughs> almost, almost, to me it was almost supernatural. In connection with this, I want to tell you something. This day, when I got the Nobel Prize, I got up in the morning, and instead of shaving and putting on a, a tie, I said to myself, today nothing will happen in my life. <laughs> nothing important, no man is going to visit me, so why should I put on a tie and shave? Let's, let's forget about the tie. But just this day, which I considered the, the, the least important day of my life has become really a most important one. In connection with this, I want to tell you a little something. The reporters kept on asking me all the time the same question. Were you surprised? Were you happy? And I said to them, yes, I was surprised, I was happy. I didn't want to discuss happiness with them, so I made it short. I said, yes, surprised and happy. This went on for about half an hour. Then they began to ask other questions. Suddenly a new reporter appeared, and of course he asked me the same question. Were you surprised? Were you happy? And I said to him, how long can a man be surprised? <laughs> and, and, and how long can a man be happy? I have already been surprised, I have already been happy, and now I'm the same Schlemiel as I ever was. Beautiful. Another question from the floor. In an introduction to the penitent, you said, it is the dilemma of modern man that he cannot live without God, but doesn't know how to live with him. Could you elaborate? I could say that what I say about modern men is true about myself. I could not live without the idea of there is a God and that there is providence. At the same time, because I'm a skeptic, I don't know really how, how, to, how to live in the way I imagine one should live with God. I don't know it. But still I say to myself, since I'm a skeptic and I, have, I don't know, have never had any revelation, I should be good to human beings as much as I can be. Because we are all in the same boat, we are all more or less the same skeptics, although we have faith, but we have also many moments of skepticism and of questions. So I would say, I don't know, I know that there is a God, but it's not clear to me how to live by him. The only thing I can say is, the best we can do is be as kind to other human beings as we can be.
In your stories, you refer to the Almighty in very traditional patriarchal imagery. How do you feel about the notion that God may have female characteristics? The question was uh, how I would feel if, if God would be really a female, a woman. I will tell you, Dr. Meisel, I once spoke to an atheist, and, and, and we expressed all kinds of ideas about God. He said that he doesn't believe in any revelation, there was never any revelation, that there never will be. And then I, then I said to him, how do you know all these things? What do we know about God? Maybe God is a female altogether. So he said to me, since I don't, I don't believe in revelations, and if God would have been a female, she would have, uh, she would have revealed herself many times. Of course, he was a cynic, and this was his idea. Whether I, I should repeat this or not, I hope the ladies won't feel insulted by it. Question from the floor. Are the characters from your early stories alive and well somewhere in Poland or somewhere else in Eastern Europe today? I would say that most of, of, the, of the figures of my writing are not alive, whether they are well, if they are well, they may, it may be in paradise, not in this world. Because I write mostly about people who have perished in Poland and in Europe generally. Mm -hmm. There's another question here that comes to mind as you say that. Do, do you write mostly about people who have lived or are living or are most of your characters a product of your imagination? I would say that I, I never invent character. I don't invent. I said to myself many times that the Almighty has created millions and billions of characters in the history of, of humanity, and I don't need to invent characters. <laughs> in other words, I, I use the characters, the people whom I met in my life. Of course, I'm, I might have met a person in Poland, and I make him live here in New York and still speaking Yiddish and so on. But I, I avoid cre cre creating characters because they are there. I once said that I believe, of course, that literature is, is the law of individuality. And we know that millions and billions of people have lived, they all had fingerprints. And every one of these fingerprints was different than the other fingerprints. What is true about fingerprints is also true about the human character, the human spirit. We are all different. And since we are all different and the master of the universe has created us to be so different, there is no reason for me to create new characters. I use the old ones. <laughs> Let me remind the radio audience that uh Mr. Singer read an unpublished story uh, as part of his major presentation called the, the Missing Line. The question from the floor is, when did you write the story that you just read? Uh, uh, the answer is that I wrote the story about two years ago, and, and my secretary, Deborah, helped me translate it. It's, it's a new story. It was never published. I'm glad to read to you a story which was never published before. You have certainly deserved it for your kindness. How important is literature for children, is the next question. I remember as a child, I was so eager for stories that I, I once said to my mother, if I would find a million rubles, then there were still rubles, I would, I would buy storybooks for, for all the money. I was ready to, to walk 20 miles to, to get a storybook, to hear a story. I, I said in, in, in another case that children are the best readers, the best critics. Because first of all, children read books, not reviews. Which is a wonderful <laughs> thing about it. A second thing is, Children don't read advertisements. They are not impressed if, if, a, if a book is published in the New York Times on a whole page or a half a page or a quarter page. If they like a story, they, they take it. If they don't like it, they reject it. They like stories, really. The second thing is 
that that uh, children have their all children are independent uh, independent readers they judge a story if it uh, entertains them or not they never have they never look for messages they never uh, expect that uh, literature should reveal their identity and some of the other phrases which critics use in their appraising of books the child wants a story to love it to be entertained by it and in this respect they are the best readers i'm very happy when i can write something for children as a college literature teacher uh, is the next question i would like to know how you would like to see your own works presented and dealt with in the classroom what should college students meeting your work for the first time carry away from it I don't know what they carry away with them, but I know that my stories are taught in classrooms all over America, and not only in America, but all over the world. I just came back from Sweden and Norway, where I spoke there. And uh, many editors of, of uh, magazines for children came to me, and they told me that many children enjoy my, my books translated into Swedish, into, into, into Norwegian and so on. So because of this, I, I, I take it as a gift of God that just as I love children, they like me too. What would your message be to Mr. Reagan and Mr. Gorbachev on the day after their summit meeting? My message, as a matter of fact, they called me from the New York Times. They wanted me to, to give them a message, but I did not give them. But now I will tell you what I, I would like. I would like that, they, that their deeds should be as nice as their talk. Do you think that people's sense of humor has changed from one generation to the next? I, I would say that humor is actually eternal. We don't, it is true that we don't know the humor of, of let's say, 10,000 years ago, what kind of humor the cavemen had. We don't even know about the humor of the time of the Bible, because many scholars have decided that there is no, no joke, actually, neither in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament. Some of them did find a half a joke in the Old Testament. <laughs> But I would say that humor is a, has been a part of human life in all the times, I'm sure about it, because humanity could not exist, could not have gone through all the tragedies which it went through, all the crises, without a sense of humor. The very fact that we are here shows that our parents, our grandparents and great-grandparents had a sense of humor. <laughs> Wonderful. What is your favorite biblical story? Well, to ask what is my favorite biblical story is every word in the Bible to me is, is I love them all just as, as a, you cannot ask a mother what is the best child. She would say, all my children are the best to me. The same thing is about the stories in the Bible. To, to pick out one story of the Bible and, 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 and say this is the best would be almost insulting the divine writers of the Bible. They are all divine, all wonderful. After many years of premature reports of the death of Yiddish, there seems to be a renaissance of that wonderful language. To what do you attribute this rebirth? I think that Mark Twain said once that the rumors about my death are exaggerated. <laughs> and I think this is true also about the rumors about the death of Yiddish. It's for the last two or three hundred years, they all say that Yiddish is dying. And I said once, I hope Yiddish will continue to die for the next thousand years. <laughs> I'm sure it will, because Yiddish contains treasures of human history and human uh, creation which cannot be really lost. Of course, the situation, I wouldn't say that the situation is very good. The young generation does not speak Yiddish. 
Many of the people who did speak Yiddish in Europe, in Poland especially, have disappeared. But just the same, things, uh, languages which contain elements of, of, of real culture can never be lost. In this respect, I'm an optimist. In most respects, I'm a pessimist. <laughs> this bears on the same issue. When your work is translated from Yiddish to English, do you think uh, English uh, is a rich enough language to do it justice? I would say that uh, every, everything which is translated loses in translation, and especially we know that humor uh, and poetry are, are very heavy losers. So I would be a very heavy loser since I, I use often uh, folklore and, and images of uh, poetic images, I would be, but I take care of the, of the translation myself. The, the, in all the years, the tw for 20 years, I've been watching all translations, working on them. Some of, of, of my translators, even the good ones, have made very terrible mistakes. I remember a fact, well, uh, about a translator who translated something from the, from the English into, into Hebrew. And he came to a, a, a passage which said she cried like a woman in labor. He knew what a woman is and what labor is. It didn't occur to him that a woman in labor means a pregnant woman. So, and since in his mind labor was connected with the labor movement, <laughs> so he translated it, she cried like a woman in the histadrut. The Histadrut is the union, is the organization of the, of the labor unions in Israel. <laughs> yes, they make very bad mistakes, but they also help me a lot, because in the process of translation, I correct not only their mistakes, but also my mistakes, which I made in writing. Because of this, especially in the, in the English language, because of this, I would say the translation has done a word of good for me. I would have never gotten the Nobel Prize without the translators. Another question. Do you still sweat out receiving rejection slips from your stories, for your stories from New Yorker, etc.? As a matter of fact, Dr. Meisel, I just, ca I just received yesterday or a day before yesterday a rejection from the New Yorker. <laughs> I've had four, the, the last few months, I had, I had four or five stories and they loved them. Suddenly I, get, I got a letter that this particular story they don't like too much. And the man kept on apologizing, but he did not need to apologize because whenever I get a rejection, I begin to work on the story, work hard, try to find what was the reason of the rejection. And the net result is, that I have a better story and it's published either by the same New Yorker or by another magazine. So I would say, whenever I get a rejection, I know that there is important work for me to do. I wish this would be true with girls who get rejections from boys. <laughs> I think they should do the same thing which I do. Try to become better girls, better looking, nicer people, and sooner or later someone will find out and they will not be rejected, but accepted with love. <laughs> the number of questions gather around the, the, the uh, issue or where do you get the inspiration for your stories? The truth is, the answer is that we don't know where we get inspiration. I think inspiration is a gift of God. Of course, there are also cases where the events are so unusual that they give some inspiration. But I don't wait for unusual kind of uh, happenings at events. I would say I get up every morning with an appetite to write. In other words, with, I'm inspired to do some writing. Of course, the telephone keeps on ringing. And I often have to, to write my story between one telephone call to another. But just the same, my desire to write, my, or call it inspiration, is always there. Thank God for this.
Another comment or question. You quote many philosophers in your stories, even as in the story you read, which, which have been important influences upon your own understanding. I would say in my young days, I was a great admirer of Spinoza. The idea that, that, that everything is God and God is everything seemed to me most wonderful. The, the idea that I too am a part of God and even the jacket which I'm wearing is a part of God and my glasses, all this inspired me immensely. I, to, but today I have some doubts about Spinoza. I don't like the fact his fatalism. He believes really that everything we do has been, has been decided already uh, determined billions of years ago or perhaps an eternity before us because this takes away from man his greatest gift which God has given him free will, free choice. I accept Spinoza but I don't accept his fatalism or his determinism. I believe that we still have some freedom left and we can decide to do good things or bad things. When and why did you become interested in demons, etc.? The, the question is why I am interested in demons. I will tell you, I, first of all, the, I know I lose almost every day or every second day a manuscript, and I know that the demons take it. <laughs> I keep on accusing my wife. I say you have again taken away, thrown out a manuscript of mine, and she always says to me that she didn't do it and sooner or later it's brought back, I find it on my desk and I know that only the demons could have done it. <laughs> to be on the serious side, about 300 or 400 years ago, if you would have told anybody that in a little mud in the street you can find millions or billions of living creatures and they can create sickness, they can also build things and make our harvest, make the grain grow, people would say that it's nonsense, especially the so-called enlightened people, the rationalists. But suddenly we, they were discovered, and we know that they do exist, and you, and you can find them in a little more than the street. Lately, viruses were suddenly discovered, almost uh, overnight, and we also, we never we never knew about them, but now we know we speak about them, at least the doctors speak about them, they believe that they are there. So why couldn't demons exist? The fact that we don't see them means nothing, we don't see the, the microbes either, and especially not the, the viruses. It would be silly to think that we have reached the summit of knowledge, and from now on nothing can be discovered. It is my conviction that 500 years from now, the children who will go to school will know many things and many entities of which we have no inkling today. They will even be wondering why their grandparents did not find them out before. So because of this, I don't say I'm sure about demons, I'm skeptical about them too, but <laughs> not enough not to believe in them. Thank you. To say I don't believe in them. <laughs> Let me just remind our radio audience that they have been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis and that our very special guest today has been Isaac Peshevis Singer, novelist and writer and Nobel laureate. He treated us early in the hour to the reading of The Missing Line, an original story shared with us afresh. Let me simply quote him in concluding this program. He said some time ago, or wrote, there is no paradise for bored readers and no excuse for tedious literature that does not intrigue the reader, uplift his spirit, give him the joy and the escape that is true art, that true art always grants. Let me just go on record for all of us that there was nothing boring or tedious here today and much to intrigue and uplift and give joy. We are glad that this was not a shared hallucination, but that in fact you were with us as you have been. <laughs> Take this from you. 